I think that we begin any religious question or endeavor with a very binary way. Some of you are like me. You don't think in that, with that word. So you, what's binary? It means either one or zero. Many of you get that instinctively. I would, be, I would not be humble enough to ask. I would just be like, hmm, and I wouldn't know what I was being. It's either a one or a zero. And here's the binary way that we begin a discussion about anything related to Christianity and to faith and to God. Do you actually believe God is for you? That's the the sin in the garden. You know, the story of Adam and Eve, and and you're like, I thought it was that they disobeyed. They did disobey, but why? They stopped believing God is for them. What about you? Do you actually believe he's for you? He's for us. It's bigger than you. You're not the point of all of it. But when we approach God's word... When we approach the teachings, the promises especially, but then the accompanying commands of Scripture, do we actually believe that He's for us? I went to the University of Missouri and I uh, took a number of humanities classes through the Honors College, which I was not a part of, so I would have to get a special dispensation all the time. And in the first one, they taught uh, on Christianity, and the professor, who I liked very much, grew up Mennonite. Uh, He was a missionary for a while, and then he went to Harvard and taught mostly on the book of Revelation, but he taught general Christianity at the University of Missouri, which had a religious studies program, not specifically religion or Christianity. And he stood up in front of 400 people, giant humanities class, and he said, if Christianity is true, then the book of Romans is the most important letter ever written. And what it teaches is that followers of Christ are justified which means made right by God, and they receive that through faith, which is belief and an active trust in the life and the work of Jesus Christ. And if you've been here the last couple of weeks, you're like, I thought we were doing a series on money. We are. But it's Christianity that we're talking about. It's the Father heart of God and the love of Jesus Christ and the indwelling Holy Spirit, which begins with God's pursuit of you. God's making your heart right with him because of the work of Christ that we receive through no merit of our own. So if God is for us, and if we are justified by faith, then we inevitably ask this question. How then do we live? And so the reason that I'm talking broadly about faith is if we start talking about the wisdom sections of the scripture, if we start talking about the commands before talking about the promises, we're doing something profoundly unchristian. But if we begin with justification by faith, if we're actually grasped by much more so than we grasp, if we're grasped by the fact that the work of Christ reconciles us to God, then we know that we're loved And we have to ask the question, how do I respond to that love? What then do I do? How then should I live? And I want to remind you that this is based upon actual men and women in history reporting on what they saw and heard. I'm reading a book on Advent by an Episcopalian priest named Fleming Rutledge. 
And she writes this way about the New Testament. There is something different about the tone of the New Testament witness, something out of the ordinary. These men and women were staking their very lives literally on something that had been seen and corroborated by a large number of other witnesses whom they in turn trusted. It is not cult-like or weird. However, there is something sober, worldly, disingenuous about the New Testament. Its atmosphere is not what you would call religious at all. It's much more straightforward. I share that with you and commend her writings, teachings to you, because the New Testament is such an irreligious book. If by religion we mean do this and God is happy with you. Instead, it's look at what God has done and then respond out of love because of love. So when we talk biblically about money, what we're actually talking about is the gospel. We're learning the gospel, which I think if we're honest, we struggle with parts of the gospel. Some some of us will struggle with different parts of the gospel. So let's describe it this way for the sake of this sermon and for the sake of, uh, well, I'm just going to describe it this way. How about that? You're loved because God is God and you are you. But you are unable to save yourself. You're a mess. You're sinful. And you cannot save yourself. You cannot stand before a holy God without the work of Christ. And you have a role to play in his story as an agent of his love and peace and reconciliation. Now, one of those three steps probably makes you uncomfortable. For me, it's the loved part. No problem acknowledging I'm a mess. No problem believing the sweet part of the gospel that I have a role to play but that I'm loved because God is God and I am me, that's harder for me to believe. What about you? Which part of the three steps of that way of summarizing the gospel is harder for you to accept and trust? We're learning the gospel in the movements of the with God life. In the movements of the with God life, we try and which we're working right now as a church to put language to our vision of. I love the word cruciform. We long to be formed in light of the cross of Christ. One of our founding members' favorite verses, Galatians 20, I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but He. So we worship together. One of the movements of the with God life is to worship. We long for that worship to be Trinitarian. Because God exists in three parts. Father, Son, and Spirit. And that may or may not be interesting to you theologically, but part of the reason it's so important is it reminds us of our own need for community, first with Him and then with one another. We move into community with Him and with one another as worshipers. The second movement of the with God life is to take care of one another, spiritual family. And we do a really imperfect job of that around here, but we're working on it. We learn to love one another because the character of God is that when Jesus ascended into heaven, he said, go and make disciples. I'll be with you always until the end of the age. And the New Testament leaders and writers spent a lot of energy Figuring out how to take care of one another.
my old church, it would take about 15 minutes to dismiss the kids. There were about 100 adults and 100 kids. And um, what we would sometimes say jokingly, but also seriously, was our greeting time is really long. Let's call it neighbor love practice time. We get nervous about Christian community because it's so imperfect. And most of us have been hurt by the church. Some of us don't even realize it because of how limited and sinful we are. And yet, one of the movements of the With God Life is to learn to take care of one another. And it begins here. Many of you are already very involved in learning to take care of one another, in in taking care of one another through this local gathering. I hope that you are. And the other thing that we're learning, to the other piece of the vision that we're rehearsing, and as we learn and put together the words of the vision, we're learning the gospel. And we're becoming a more whole and healthy and integrated church is we're learning to be a faithful presence. That's why Sheila shared what's going on with Kairos. We can't all be involved with Kairos. But many of us can. Next week, we take a donation for the food pantry or a local food pantry because there are people here that don't know where their next meal is going to come from, people in the community of the Farmington Valley. There are other things going on in and around this community and we're learning as a church to worship, to take care of one another and to be a faithful presence. And the reason I'm reminding you of that is these are the steps that we take as humans who are followers of Christ and as a church. We learn to rehearse the gospel. We learn to the movements of the with God life. And what those who believe in God understand with respect to money is that we're stewards. And this is the last of this, of this particular series on money. And some of you are like, man, I was hoping it was going to be all year. And some of you are relieved. And for others, this is the first one of these that you've heard. But I want to remind us of the three movements. So the three movements of the gospel, the three movements of our church vision, and the three movements of followers of Jesus with respect to money. So we learn the gospel and the movements of the with God life towards generosity, saving, and mundane joy or enjoying what God has asked us to steward. We learn to be generous. That's the first move because of love for God. And love is both feelings and activity, right? You have a brother or sister, you love them, but they don't know you love them unless you call them. Our love for God is a feeling and it is more than a feeling. And so we learn to be generous as a way of loving him. And you know what the benefit is? I've been listening to, uh, well, the benefit is we don't disintegrate. which sounds awkward. It's sort of like science fiction. And yet that's what sin does. Do you understand that? You're human. You're made in the image of God. And yet in this cursed And broken world, what envy and covetousness and greed do is they disintegrate your humanity. And that's why the gospel teaching on money is so important. And I know you're uncomfortable. I know the the things we don't talk about at the dinner table, right? Politics, religion, money. Or we talk about money, but we just talk about other people's money, right? We're fine with that, but never ours. I think the reason that those subjects make us uncomfortable is we know something's wrong with how we talk about it. It shouldn't bother us so much. We should be able to be open about it or we should understand. We know that those things matter a lot. And yet they 
challenge us. They get to our emotions quicker than so many other subjects. And yet the scriptures talk so regularly about money. And so what I want to remind us, the, the, the first move of the with God life with respect to money is learning to be generous. And the benefit that we get is our humanity is integrated. Not disintegrated. That's a way of talking about wholeness. I listened to some podcasts specifically about how people view the world, learning about how you view the world and how I view the world. It's very helpful. And they use the word integrated all the time. And I'm sitting there in my car and I'm nodding and I'm pretending like I know what it means. And I'm like, I don't actually know what they mean by integrated. And then I thought about it. The opposite of integrated is disintegrated. So when, by the Holy Spirit's power, we avoid envy, we're becoming more whole. You know how envy lies to you, telling you that you deserve that thing? The good news of Jesus is so much better than you deserving that thing. It's that your Father in Heaven loves you and has called you His own and purchased a kingdom for you. What's the kingdom? Joy, peace, and contentment. Envy lies to you and talks to you about what you do and don't deserve and what someone else probably doesn't deserve. Covetousness lies and attempts to convince you that if you had more, you'd be content. That's what covetousness does. When we see the thing that we don't have and we want it, there's a subtle lie in there. You would be happy if you had that thing. And you might want that thing and you might buy it and that'd be good. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the lie. You know that extra energy when you see something that you want? And maybe you can hear it. I can't hear it. It's very subtle. It's you'd be happy if you had that. Then there's greed, which I think is actually just as much about contempt for money in our circumstances as it is about what we think we want. Maybe it's not that devious in your own mind, but most of my issues with money have as much to do with hating it which is a form of love, as it does with loving it. You know what I'm talking about? So when I talk about the gospel in those three steps and I ask which one of them makes you uncomfortable, I expect with money one of the three moves that a follower of Jesus takes in response to the love of God about money is easy for you. And one of them is a little bit more challenging and one is a little bit more challenging than that. Well, the first is to be generous towards God with what he's asked us to steward. The second one is to save. And the, the reason saving matters is it, it's so important that you know that you're more than your job. A friend of mine used to counsel in New York City and almost everyone she counseled was under the oppression of believing that they were fully what they did and what that produced. That's part of the reason that saving is important. That's why the Proverbs talk about it. That's why in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul assumes that they're saving. He calls generosity an act of grace. In 1 Corinthians 16, he assumes that they're saving. That's why Jesus doesn't condemn this man who built so many more barns for saving at all. What he condemns him for is believing that that saving would speak to his soul. So he's over saving. But we save. So we're generous towards God and we learn how to save partly to, rem- to remember that you are not your job, though your job matters. You are not the amount of money your job makes, though that is what you get to steward for God, for your family, and for you to enjoy. The other reason we save is an act of humility, because we do not know 
what tomorrow will bring. Do you like nachos? Do you like risotto? I've been working on my risotto recipe lately. I've been starting with bacon. It goes so much faster because the rice absorbs all the bacon fat. Oh, it's so good. Do you enjoy what the scriptures call the good gifts of food and drink? See, that's part of stewardship too. Not only being generous, not only saving, but enjoying what God has asked you to steward. Do you like tea or wine? I don't like either of those two things, but I know you guys do, and I've used my own illustrations before. I do like nachos. Part of your calling as a follower of Jesus is to learn to enjoy what the scriptures call good gifts. And we go through seasons where we won't. We go through seasons where that risotto tastes really good. And we really enjoy this tea or this wine or perhaps these nachos. And I know when I start talking about uh, alcohol specifically, but also other things, I know the destruction of addiction. I do. But you know what else is dangerous? Joylessness. And calling something evil that God calls good. There's addiction in my family. I know the destruction that it causes, but we do not call evil what God calls good. And so I don't know which one of those three things. I was, I'm, I'm kind of tempted to waltz when I talk about how there's three of them. You know, one, two, three. Waltz. Is waltzing still a thing? I had to learn it as a kid. I don't know which one of those is easy for you and which one is a little bit challenging and which one is really challenging. The title is The Parts of Money That Make Us Nauseous because one of those is probably easiest for, easy for you to be generous. But then it's more challenging for some of us to save. Some of you are like... I thought everybody saved like 15%. Some of us struggle to enjoy what God has asked us to steward because we're not confident we're loved. We're not confident in the Father heart of God. And so we believe we're only supposed to be generous and only supposed to, be saved, to save. One of those three steps is challenging because that's how cursed the world is. We do not naturally believe that God loves us. We do not naturally lean into the good news of Jesus. Part of it is more challenging. And yet the scriptures teach us over and over these three moves to free us into the flourishing with God life. And you know why we do it? It's actually for his glory. At least two things will not grow a church. That's preaching about suffering and reminding us that following Jesus is for his glory. And yet, theologically, that's why we do any of this. Because he is God and we are creatures. And what I find interesting about that is, if we only preach kind of self-help type stuff, it'll be more engaging Sunday to Sunday, but it won't last. Because you know it's not true. That we do these things to become better humans. We follow Jesus because of what God did for us in Christ. We learn to steward our words and our hands and what he's given us, our finances, because of who he is. 
The first question of the Westminster Shorter Confession of Faith is, what is the chief end of man? It's to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So a natural response to that is, how then shall I live? And then we learn the movements of the with God life. Generosity, to save and then to enjoy what he's given us. And through that, we become our true selves. I'm not going to mention that first because that's not the first reason. The first reason is because he's God and we're not. But what happens when we learn to follow and to trust him? We become who we fully are supposed to be. We mature as lovers of him. And neighbor, the screw tape letters, this strange often hilarious book about an older demon writing to a younger demon by C.S. Lewis. He talks about, the older demon talks about Christianity as so odd that in submitting to Jesus, in laying down our lives and saying, okay, you're Lord, not me, we actually become our true self. Of course, the goal of the demon is that no one ever learned that. And that's true. Through learning to trust him. Through learning the waltz of the gospel and the waltz of Christian community and the waltz of our finances, we become who we truly are, an integrated woman or man. And you know, the the advice of this sermon, to learn to be generous, to learn to save, to learn to enjoy what we've been asked to do, that actually works regardless of whether you believe Christianity is true. That's actually good advice to a regular human, regardless of their faith. Learn to be generous, learn to save, learn to enjoy what you have. And it will not speak to your soul. That's what's so interesting about this parable Jesus, talks, Jesus told in Luke chapter 12 about the man who was oversaving. Because it's important to save, but we can oversave and miss out on generosity and miss out on enjoying what we have, right? I'd be missing step two. When Jesus tells the story, there's so much in this parable, that's why I keep returning to it. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus says, The land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, What shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods, and I will say to my soul, Because that's the the curse. That's the brokenness of the world. We believe all these other things can speak to our soul when only God and the good news of Jesus Christ can speak to our soul and speak speak to it about peace and about joy. So we learn the gospel and we learn the movements of the with God life. That guide us towards generosity, saving, and enjoying what we have. We do that for him. And for our neighbors and for us to become who we truly are called to be as followers of him. Do you pray with me? Father in heaven, we believe that you have purchased a kingdom for us, righteousness, joy, and peace, and yet help us, Lord, to believe that and to believe it more deeply. 
that because of your pursuing love, because of the work of Christ and the Holy Spirit, we have joy, peace. Father, would you guide us as individuals, as families, and as a church to trust you with our heart and our decision, with our decisions, with our words, and with our finances. Amen.